Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Exploring the biblical theme of the day of the Lord. And uh, I just want to, before we jump into today, I want to just recap kind of quickly where we've been so far. Uh, In week one, we had a nice and tidy uh, definition of the day of the Lord that uh, I stole from the Bible Project. But I don't steal it if it's citing it. So I'm going to cite it. Uh, And it says this. This is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a phrase used in the Bible to describe how God is at work in history to confront collective human evil, liberate his people from oppression, and assert his rule over all of creation. Uh, You know, collective human evil isn't really fun to talk about, uh, but it is a real thing that we need to discuss. Uh, that, That is to say that when we think about redemption and sin, we shouldn't just think about those things on an individual basis, but we need to recognize that those are realities that are happening on a systemic and collective and communal basis. Uh, And so there is communal and systemic sin. And one of the central ways that we've been talking about that or thinking about that is uh, it, it comes about as we seek to redefine good and evil for ourselves. So that sometimes we can call what is evil good because it benefits me or my tribe. And so a lot of times we redefine good and evil for ourselves. Uh, And this is actually the evil that God seeks to confront with the day of the Lord. And so one of the central motifs or the image for collective evil in the biblical story is uh, the image of Babylon. Babylon is a real place in history, but also a shorthand way of talking about systemic sin and collective human evil. Uh, So that was the first week. In week two, uh, the first time we learned this, the first time we see God confront collective human evil is in the Exodus when God confronts the evil of Egypt by turning Egypt's evil onto itself, rescuing his oppressed people. And then after being uh, rescued from slavery and oppression, Israel calls it the day, the day that uh, the Lord rescued us out of Egypt and the Passover is celebrated every single year. It was a day they looked back on. It was the day of rescue and liberation for them. Uh, So thus, what we find is the day of the Lord becomes a motif throughout the scripture when God releases people from oppressive systems. And so each time Israel faced threats from other nations, they would pray for the day of the Lord, a day when God would rescue them from the threats that they faced. Today, what we're going to look at uh, is we're going to look at the surprising churn in the story. Uh, but before we get started, I want to say this. There is, um, there is a chance that this message uh, will challenge some long ideas uh, that you have held in your faith. Uh, and I just want to encourage you to remain open to uh, the material presented, but also to the movement of the Holy Spirit and how he might just be stirring in your heart uh, as we go through this together. Okay, so let's say uh, that being said, we do need to ask for his help. So let's say a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, as we today open up your word and explore it, uh, we want to not bring our own preconceived ideas or notions to the scriptures, uh, but rather seek to fully understand uh, this story that you have given to us, the word of God. Uh, So God, help us in these moments, uh, not just to understand on an intellectual level, but to understand and apply uh, to our hearts and to our lives. Uh, God, may your Holy Spirit be freely at work and active among us, Uh, that we might be formed more and more into your likeness, uh, 
and that we might be formed collectively uh, as the people of God uh, for right here and right now. Uh, So God, we love you. We give you thanks and praise. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Now, we need to do some catching up on the story. A lot of what we've been through has been narrative-based as we've explored the biblical story together. And so we need to catch up on the story uh, right where we picked picked up. Uh, And so so today, left off and picked up. That's what I wanted to say. We need to pick up where we left off. That's what I wanted to say. Uh, So (laughs) sometimes I hate that these are recorded because all those little like missteps... Uh, are there forever. So, uh, now t- so today, when possible, as we're catching up on the biblical story, I'm going to allow the scripture itself uh, to tell the story. So I'll be reading a number of passages, uh, then I'll make a couple of observations. Uh, but given kind of the nature that there's not a central passage of scripture that we'll be looking at, uh, I'm just going to kind of read different passages to help move the narrative story along. Uh, but right after the Exodus, um, Israel uh, eventually uh, makes it into, makes their way into a land that God had promised to them. Uh, While there, they had a chance to live uh, into their own as a people, where God had established them as a people to be a light to the nations and to demonstrate what life is like under the reign and the rule of God. Uh, Now, uh, given their calling and their vocation to be a light to the nations and demonstrate what it's like to live under the life and rule of God, uh, let's just say that Israel had mixed success with all of this. Uh, At one point, they look around at all the other nations of the world and they see that those nations have a king. And so they ask God to have a king. God, can we have a king? Because everyone else has a king, right? Uh, it's, like, it's like high school began in ancient Israel. You know, like, oh, look, they have one, and so can I have one too? Uh, so that, that's how it went. Now, initially, God resists this idea uh, because of their vocation to demonstrate his rule and reign to the entire world. Uh, they need to organize themselves around God as king. Uh, but God, uh, they keep insisting, eventually God accommodates their wishes uh, and provides them with a king with the assumption that the role of the king of Israel would be to embody the rule of God to the people. So the role of the king of Israel was always to embody the rule and reign of God to the people that they, as a nation, might do that for the world. Now, initially, this works out pretty well. Uh, Saul is uh, named and appointed as the first king. Uh, And at first, he embodies the rule of God over Israel uh, and does a good job with that. But after a while, uh, there's this young David who is anointed uh, as the next king. Saul grows jealous, eventually tries to kill David, uh, but doesn't succeed. And then David becomes king and is widely regarded as Israel's best king. So more than anyone, David embodies God's rule although not perfectly. Uh, but, so, but David, throughout Scripture, is referenced back as he was our best king. Uh, and then after David is Solomon, and I'm, I'm skipping like huge swaths of the story, so, but, but I'm just trying to give you like this big picture view. After David was Solomon. Now Solomon, upon becoming king, prays this, and it'll be up on the screens, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. He prays this after he's become king. He says, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people that you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or to number. And so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right 
and wrong. Now, this is really, really important because other translations translate it this way. Uh, Give me a heart to govern your people and to discern between good and evil. Now, given our discussion about what collective human evil looks like when we seek to define good and evil on our own terms, this prayer by Solomon becomes really, really important. Solomon is praying for discernment to be able to know and discern between what is good and what is evil. So his prayer should raise our eyebrows a little bit. He prays for the ability to discern good and evil uh, as, he, as it is, not as he would choose to define it. Uh, And this shows a very sensitive spirit on the part of Solomon. But let's see what happens. Well, actually what happens is God grants him wisdom and blesses him with many riches. And Israel experiences uh, years of peace and prosperity. And because of this peace, Solomon now has the resources and the time to build a temple to God and a palace of his own. Uh, In other words, it's kind of amazing what you can accomplish when you aren't fighting a war. Uh, If you think that's a little misstep, then let's read 1 Kings chapter 5, beginning with verse 3. It says this, Now you know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of... uh, Uh, for the name of the Lord his God, until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple in the name of the Lord my God. Now, this part in the early story of Israel, uh, it appears that God will always be on Israel's side and always against Israel. Israel's enemies. After all, they were, in fact, established by God as a nation. And they have a king who professes allegiance to Yahweh. And their, and, and their king came after one who, while not perfect, embodies God's rule to the world. They were a Yahweh-worshiping nation that had been founded on Yahweh's principles. And this is where the story takes a surprising turn. Because things aren't quite as they seem. As you keep reading, what you realize is that Solomon built the Lord's temple and his palace with slave labor. The same way Egypt had built all of their buildings, accumulated all of their wealth on the backs of the Israelites. Now Israel, under the leadership of Solomon, is using slave labor to build the Lord's temple and his own palace. 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 15 through 23 says this. Now there were still people left from the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. These people were not Israelites. And Solomon conscripted the descendants of all these people who were remaining in the land whom the Israelites could not exterminate to serve as slave labor as it is to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of any of the Israelites, for they were his fighting men, his government officials, his officers, his captains, and the commanders of his chariots and charioteers. They were also the chief officials in charge of Solomon's projects, 550 officials supervising those who did the work. And so as we read on, maybe things aren't quite as they seem. Maybe things aren't quite as hunky-dory as we might assume. Because now, those that Israel could not at first exterminate are used as slave labor to build the Lord's temple. 
And even at this point, we, we, might, be, we might be tempted to say that's okay. Solomon was building God's temple. Uh, Egypt was building their own buildings for their own kinds of gods. And so it's really okay. It was, he was doing it for God. And slavery was the, the, the way of the day. There was no other real option. And so we might just be able to say because he was doing it for God, it, there, there's really no problem. But let's keep going in the story. Later in his life, Solomon uses slave labor not just to build the Lord's temple and his own palace, but now he uses it to build places of worship for any number of other gods. Nothing as big or elaborate or as nice for sure but that he had built for Yahweh, but places of worship nonetheless. And this is clear idolatry. He also, um, later what we find out is, is Solomon also disobeys instructions given, for, given to Israelite kings in the book of Deuteronomy. You can read all of this if you'd like. Uh, the instructions uh, in Deuteronomy were for any Israelite king to not import goods from Egypt. And, and again, the idea is if we, if we read the scripture as, kind of, as, as just a flat text and everything, just take it for what it says, then we might be tempted to believe that importing goods is bad, <laughs> right? We might just say, oh, well, that's what this text is saying. And that's not at all what this text is saying. Uh, but there were instructions from the Israelite king to never import goods from Egypt. And it's not that importing material is bad, but it, rather it's a symbol for not returning to the place of enslavement from which God has freed you. But Solomon does not do that. In fact, Solomon looks at the wealth of Egypt and he says, this is a great place to help make myself wealthy. So he imports all kinds of goods from Egypt. He imports gold and silver and horses and peacocks because they're fun and apes, that's awesome, and ivory and chariots all from Egypt, right? He brings in all this kind of stuff from Egypt. What I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to get across to you today is, is the surprising twist in the story is this. That now that Israel was free and wealthy, they themselves begin defining good and evil on their own terms. Precisely what Solomon had prayed not to do. And I would want to say to you that this is all pointing us to a really important truth about the nature of evil and the work of Jesus. But to tell you all about that, I'm going to invite you to church next week, <laughs> right? But here's the point. The oppressed have become the oppressors. That those who were enslaved in Egypt, as soon as they experienced wealth, as soon as they experienced freedom, they themselves began to oppress others. The question is, what is God going to do? Is God always on the side of Israel and always against the, the, all Israel's enemies? Is this how God works? What is God going to do? How is God going to respond? Well, let's turn to the Old Testament prophets to find out. An old, on the hills outside of Jerusalem, there is a shepherder, sheep herder, shepherd named Amos. And he says this, this is in Amos chapter 5. He says, You levy a straw tax on the poor, and you impose a tax on their grain. Therefore you have built stone mansions, but you will not live in them. And though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many of you, how, how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. And all of this is addressed to, to the nation of Israel. And there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, 
for the times are evil. Verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may live, and then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil and love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God Almighty says. There will be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all of the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. If any one of you thinks that the life of a prophet is a life of luxury, you are wrong. (laughs) I mean, how would these words have been received by Israel? These are words of of condemnation. and These are words of, of, of conviction. You need to change your ways. And then verse 18, this is where it really hits home. He says this, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. And why do you long for the day of the Lord? For that day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. (laughs) As though he entered his house and then rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? Now, I don't mean to be too discouraging, right? I can see all of you slumping down in your chairs. (laughs) But this is the surprising churn of the story. That where Israel was in a place of of wealth and and, and prosperity and freedom, and, and they were coming, all these threats were coming against them, and they would pray for the day of the Lord to come to save them from their threats. And out in the hills outside of Jerusalem is a prophet named Amos who says, no, no, no. Listen, you have redefined good and evil on your own terms. And so now the day of the Lord is coming. But this time, Israel is the target. You with me? This is sobering news, right? It's surprising news. What the prophet Amos does is he flips the image of the day of the Lord and he tells Israel, because you have overtaxed the poor and built mansions with slave labor, you will have mansions, but you won't live in them. You will have vineyards, but you won't drink their wine. For the day of the Lord is coming and it is coming against you this time because the oppressed have become the oppressors. Now, just in case you think Amos is an isolated incident, listen to the prophet Habakkuk. This is in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 2. It says this, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out, Violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice and why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are all before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And beginning with verse 5 is the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's complaint. Verse 5 says this, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. For I am rising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth. I am raising them up to seize dwellings that are not their own. 
See what the prophet Habakkuk says is that Babylon, the real, the actual historical Babylon, the people that are the, the very personification of evil are going to be raised up to take over the land that is not their own. In other words, Israel, watch out. <laughs> because God is going to bring the day of the Lord against the Israel become Babylon by allowing the actual Babylon to defeat them. Are you with me? Let me say that again. God is going to bring the day of the Lord against the Israel become Babylon by allowing the actual Babylon to defeat them. And actually, this is precisely what happens. Israel is taken into captivity in Babylon and lives in exile under the oppression of different empires until the time of Jesus. Which is where we'll pick up the story next week. But first, I want to make a couple of observations. And before I make a couple of observations, I want to tell you about a series we're doing this fall called Embracing Exile. Because the reality is, as Israel is brought into exile and lives under the oppression of empire after empire until the, the day of Jesus, the Lord has really distinct things to say to them while they're in exile. And so, and I think there's a lot of application to us today in what God says to the people of Israel while they're in exile. So we're going to do a whole series, seven weeks, called Embracing Exile. And you can look forward to that. But let me make a couple, let me draw out some observations today. And, and this is where I think the message is going to really begin to get a lot closer to home than some may be comfortable with. The first observation I want to make is, God loves the nations, but is not nationalistic. God loves the nations, but is not nationalistic. Now, nationalism is, is when we exalt one nation, often our own, over and above all other nations. Nationalism is when we exalt a nation, often our own, over and above all other nations. And what I want to do to, to speak to us today about that, I want us to put ourselves in the place of ancient Israel and recognize that ancient Israel was certainly tempted by this. They had been raised up by God, been brought into covenant with God, had been rescued out of oppression by God. And if they could be called anything, they could be called a godly nation. And yet the text clearly says that all of this, God raising them up, entering into covenant with them, was all for the purpose that they could be a blessing to other nations. It was They were raised up for the purpose of being a light to the nations. They were raised up to demonstrate the reign and the rule of God to the world. In fact, the, the beginning of all of this is, is the story of Abraham found in Genesis chapter 12, where it says this, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is first intended for the nation of Israel. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this is in Christ and the church. But, to, more to our point here today, 
It isn't that Israel were better than any other nations. It was rather that God had raised them up uniquely to be a light to other nations so that all nations would be blessed through them. So that when, that when they find themselves under oppression, God rescues them and brings them up out of Egypt. God is faithful then to lead them into their own land that he had promised them. And it could because he wants his people to have a home and a place to call their own. However, when they are in that place of blessing, when they have resources and wealth and Israel becomes the oppressor, in response, God does not act in their favor, but faithfully responds to the voice of the oppressed. I want you to hear that. This nation that God had raised up, called out, rescued from oppression, when the tables are churned and they become the oppressors, God does not directly respond to them. God responds to the voice of the oppressed. Okay? Whose side is God on? The oppressed. Every time in Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament story, through the message of Jesus, when it's not God is on my side, it's God is listening to and responding to the voice of the oppressed. And, and as the people of God, we need to hear this with open hearts. The point is this, again. God loves nations. God loves ethnicity and culture and diversity. But any time a nation exalts themselves or their interests or their power as divine, then that nation is being animated by the power of the serpent. I know this isn't easy to hear. God loves nations. God loves ethnicity and culture and diversity. But anytime one nation exalts themselves, their interests or their power as divine, then that nation is being animated by the power of the serpent. Which leads me to my second observation. We must release our faith from nationalism. We must release our own faith from nationalism. And I want to be careful here. I, I'm afraid that some of you might maybe hear more or hear less than what I'm actually trying to say. So please understand my pastoral heart as I say this. But there is a widespread belief that because many of the American founding fathers proclaimed Christian faith, that all of the, our affairs as a nation have been pre-stamped with divine approval. Okay? There's a widespread belief that because many of our American founding fathers proclaimed Christian faith, then that meant that all of our affairs as a nation have been pre-stamped with divine approval. And often Christian faith is seen as the same thing as love or appreciation for, net, for nation. And we're, what we're tempted then to do is turn Christian faith and American patriotism into the same thing. And I, I just want to, as gently as I can, remind us this morning that they are not the same thing. In fact, I want, to be, I want to encourage us to be very careful not to conflate love of God with love of nation and make them the same thing. 
Because you can love your nation. I do. I don't want you to mishear me today. I do love the nation in which I was born and raised and live in. I love it. But we must not make love of nation the same as love for God. And maybe here's a better way of saying this. It is a mistake to make the kingdom of God into a religious version of your preferred nation. It's a mistake to turn the kingdom of God and our understanding of the kingdom of God into a religious version of our preferred nation. Because again, God is on the side of all nations and invites people from all nations and all cultures and all ethnicities into his kingdom. In fact, um, I sort of envision God's new creation like this. Uh, I sort of envision that God's new creation uh, will be a bit like taking a walk in Epcot Center, right? Have you ever taken the walk around Epcot and, and you kind of go and you, you take a few steps and all of a sudden you're in France and then you're in Germany and then you're in all these places and there's food and there's shops and there's shows and attractions that celebrate that culture and that expression and, and that ethnicity and all of that. It's a celebration of the nation's has anyone ever been to Epcot? <laughs> like, don't leave me hanging here, right? So it's like, yes, we've been there. And I sort of, I sort of picture God's new creation, like taking a walk in Epcot Center, a celebration of all the cultures and ethnicities and languages, only without all of the pretense and prejudice that we so easily jump into today. I want us, what I'm trying to do is I'm not trying to diminish anything in our faith. Rather, what I'm trying to do is elevate our love, our appreciation, and our allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. So I don't want you to mishear me today or misunderstand me today. I'm not trying to diminish anything but rather only trying to elevate our love for God and his kingdom. The story of Israel becoming the oppressor and the prophet Amos' words speak volumes to us today. And so I invite you to hear with open ears and open hearts these two quotes. The first is from the introduction to the book of Amos from Bible.com. <laughs> and the second quote that I'll share uh, is an excerpt of Greg Boyd's book, Myth of a Christian Nation. The first one is this. And, and what I want you to pay attention to is that I want you to hear the parallels. I want you to hear the parallels here. And the, and the wind is not helping us hear the parallels. So the, with any luck, our glass will be on by July 29th. So that's a good thing. The last Sunday in July, with any luck. Uh, but, but here's the two quotes. Uh, the first, introduction to the book of Amos from Bible.com. The northern kingdom of Israel reached its greatest heights in the first half of the 8th century B.C., Confident in their nation's victories, their worship, and their heritage, the people adopted the motto, God is with us. 
And they were anticipating the day of the Lord when God would strike down all their enemies and establish Israel as the undisputed ruler in the region. Into this atmosphere of overconfident nationalism steps Amos, a shepherd from Judah. He stands in the great royal temple at Bethel and announces that God is stirring up a nation to conquer Israel. That the day of the Lord, he insisted, will be darkness, not light. God isn't impressed with Israel's wealth, their military might, or their self-indulgent way of life. He is looking for justice, while the rich and powerful are taking advantage of the poor. God is calling Israel to repentance. That's the introduction to the book of Amos from Bible.com. And now this quote from Myth of a Christian Nation by Greg Boyd. What gives the connection between Christianity and politics such strong emotional force in the U.S.? I believe it is a long-standing myth that America is a Christian nation. From the start, we have tended to believe that God will manifest, God, God's will was manifested in the conquest and founding of our country and that it is still manifested in our actions around the globe. Throughout our history, most Americans have assumed that our nation's causes and wars were righteous and just, and that, quote, God is on our side. One of the principal reasons that our first defining mark points us to citizenship in God's kingdom and then says our allegiance belongs to Christ and his kingdom is that we need to be reminded that the kingdom of God is not just a religious version of the nation and culture that we are used to or prefer, but rather it is a way of, of working into our very corporate life together, the reminder that the kingdom of God includes all nations because God has placed his son as ruler over all nations. Do you believe that today? I mean, we, we need to grab a hold of that. If God is ruler over all the nations, then why elevate one nation over the next? And I also believe that we cannot pray for the Lord for the day of the Lord and the rescue of the oppressed if we have not first considered humbly, prayerfully, carefully the possibility that we might be the oppressors, not the oppressed. I promise next week will be more uplifting. <laughs> I promise that next week you may not feel the weight of conviction on your shoulders, but rather we will have the burden lifted by a God who is faithful. And we'll hear the good news that Jesus announces to a nation and to a world under oppression. Because what Jesus does is he identifies the real enemy and he defeats the real enemy enemy. See what I'm saying? And so my prayer for us this morning is to humbly, 
prayerfully and carefully consider these words. And there is a good chance that some of you in this room today are like, yes and amen, good job, pastor, you've got some guts. There's a good chance that some of you are already composing an angry email or are thinking our pastor has lost his way. And maybe considering, I just don't know if this is the place for me any longer. Wherever you're at in that spectrum, I would, I would encourage you to prayerfully, carefully, and humbly consider these words. And just listen to the Spirit of God. In what way is He moving you and directing you? And I have found tremendous freedom in recognizing bigness. I'm a, I'm a preacher, so I can make up words. The bigness, <laughs> the wide nature of the kingdom of God that has no boundaries, but a God who loves and delights and celebrates culture, ethnicity, nations, languages. Let's pray. God, today we come into contact with the reality that sometimes your word is not easy or convenient or comfortable. And in preparing these words, I have uh, had an increased heart rate. <laughs> I have sweated. But God, I want to be your faithful servant. And speak what you have called me to speak. And so God, as I have been praying during this series, if there's any truth in the words that I have spoken, would you seal them in our hearts? And God, if there's anything that needs correction, redirection, or to be thrown out, would you lead us to do that? But God, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher as we explore your word as we rely on the living word of Christ. And so God, be with us in these moments as we gather around the Lord's table today to take in your very life. We recognize today that regardless of what we think or how we feel right now, we gather together in unity around the table as we profess Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, God, may we do just that. May we gather in love, in community, in unity with one another under the banner of the Apostles' Creed, under the confession that we are sinners saved by grace, under the Lord's prayer of your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, may these things unite us as we wrestle with the rest of the truths and Scripture and the biblical story, as we wrestle with all of the, that it means for us, may we be unified in these things, God. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.